We actually have two preacher boys with us today. We could have just, uh, you know, flipped the coin and let it rest on one side or another. Anthony Mathenia and his wife Hannah and their family are with us. You'll want to greet them, hug them, give them your love. Uh, but Anthony's not preaching for us today. Another brother, Eric Raymond, senior pastor of Redeemer Fellowship Church in the metro Boston area, Watertown, right across the river from Boston. He and his wife, Christy, their beautiful family uh, is with us today. It's our pleasure to have them. After I lead us in a pastoral prayer, Eric, brother, you come and preach to us from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Thank you, Jordan. It's a privilege to be with you today here in Grace Church. So I give you greetings on behalf of Redeemer Fellowship Church in Watertown, Mass. We are partners in the gospel, loving the Lord Jesus Christ, desiring to make him known, sharing the same burdens that you share here. So it's good to meet brothers and sisters, and it's good to be here with my family here, and thankful for God's providence to, to come here and to be able to serve and worship with you guys today. I'd ask you to go ahead and open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. In just a few moments, we're going to read that passage as you guys have been working your way through the pastoral epistles and here in 1 Timothy. But before we do, if we could summarize kind of the sense of the age. What is this age about? What is our a time period about what is the kind of the ethos of the world around us that we live in. I think you could summarize it this way, that life is characterized by trusting yourself and living for today. Don't you think? With all the boasting in the arm of flesh and personal accomplishments and the reliance upon ourselves, the spending and being spent, for today. Life is really seems like it's about today. And working and laboring and striving by our own efforts to achieve and get all that we can get out of this world. Let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. I want you to see how countercultural it is to read Paul's words in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. In fact, I think the, the main thrust of what Paul is saying, primarily to the rich, but not exclusively to those who are financially well-off, but all people who might be tempted to trust themselves and live for today. I think what Paul is driving at here is that your life should be characterized by faith and calibrated by eternity. In other words, instead of trusting in yourself, you should hope in God. Instead of living for today, you should live for another age, the age to come. We'll walk through the passage, and each verse gets its own header. I think there's some warnings in verse 17. There's some instructions in verse 18. And then there's some reasons for why Paul is saying this. So let's look at it, verses 17 through 19. Let's hear God's word. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor 
to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is God's Word. So let your life be characterized by faith and calibrated by eternity. Let's look first at the, at the warnings that Paul issues. It's here in verse 17. It's, it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them. Before we move on from there, I, I think it's important to note that this is a pastoral word. This is Paul talking to Timothy, as Timothy is working in this church in Ephesus, as you guys have no doubt become familiar with and worked through, where Paul is instructing Timothy, his disciple, on how to instruct the people. And I think you might just glance right over this without thinking about the reality of what Paul is doing here. He's encouraging Timothy to, to give a pastoral word which good pastors aren't really comfortable and excited about charging and admonishing and rebuking. Though we know it is a priority of what needs to be done, it's not something we, just like ordinary Christians, don't get excited about these things. But nevertheless, the Apostle Paul, in trying to encourage Timothy to do his job, so to speak, is encouraging him to do this because that was what would be good for the church. In fact, what I think kind of puts First and Second Timothy together is this charge in Second Timothy chapter 4, in the midst of this explosion of imperatives, Paul tells Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Basically, do your job. And part of doing his job is charging the church. I just want to note how appropriate this is for Paul to tell Timothy what to do. He's charging Timothy to charge the church members. But I also want to just take a moment, just as a friend coming in, to just highlight what a gift your pastor is to you. Because I know him, and he labors to, to charge you with the Word of God. Knowing that he's, he's in some, some senses, he's going to comfort the, the unsettled, but there's some places where he's going to unsettle the comfortable. And he's going to say things that are going to get under your skin, but like a good shepherd, he's not doing it primarily to offend or anger people, but to help and to serve and to love you. And this is what we see modeled here from the apostle, is this privilege of exhorting the congregation to not think like the world. This is the only age there is. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And not to think this world is all about you. It's all about the arm of flesh and what you can get done. But it's about faith and hope in God. So the, a pastor who warns the flock and charges the flock is precious. And you, if you have one, and you do, you should thank God for him. He's a tool in your sanctification as are the other elders in this church. But note also, the, the warnings come through the, the pastor, the, this Timothy, but it's specifically to the people. 
And he has a particular group of people in mind. You notice who he's talking about. He says, as for the rich in this present age. He's talking to, to people who are, are well off. Well, we, we already learned earlier today in the service that that well-off category is pretty relative depending upon where you live and what your experiences are. And from the relative standpoint of the entire earth, if you have a pair of sneakers, according to, to Jordan, you're rich. And so we should look at that and think, we, we have been blessed. So I don't want us to be hung up on what categorizes us in this category of rich, but rather think more about our heart and what God is saying to us here. Because certainly that which applies to those who are what we might say rich applies to everybody equally as well. And you'll see that these principles that he's going after aren't primarily about zeros in the bank account, but what's in our heart, what's on the inside, what we love. So he's aiming at those who are rich, but he's been talking about money, as you've seen even in chapter 6 already, and in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 6, he's talking to those who would be poor, relatively speaking, who are tempted by riches and thinking, what I need to do to, to actually find the, the Savior that I need is to be found in money. So I'll sacrifice all to serve this Savior of money. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. Salvation is not found in money. In fact, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And now in verses 17 through 19, he's directing to those who, who would be considered more well-off. And he's saying, now let's talk to you. I just talked to those who are less financially secure about trying to find their life and identity and money. And I'm going to say the same thing to you. Don't you dare do the same thing. Don't you trust in yourself and don't you live for this age. And so what are the particulars? The way he does this in kind of grammatically in, in verses 17 through 19 is he has this admonishment, this charge to Timothy to do these things, and then what flows out of that are, are five imperatives. Two of them are negative, that is, don't do this, and three of them are positive, do this. I've kind of couched those together under warnings, that would be the negative side, and then the instructions, which is the, the second point. But let's look at the, the negative side, where he, he hits these first two. And what I want you to notice is he's not going after their wallets primarily, but their hearts which affects the wallets. He wants to work on heart change, the things that they value, the things that they treasure, and that which they love. And notice what he says. As for the rich, verse 17, charge them not to be haughty. You probably have not used the word haughty in the last week. Maybe you have. But it's arrogant. It's prideful. That's probably a word that we've used or thought about it, not to be prideful, not to be arrogant, not to be consumed with yourself. For it's, it's a folly. So he's charging them, don't be haughty, don't be arrogant. Now why might people that have money or have been financially blessed be arrogant? Well, isn't it the case to think that, that this is what we have earned, this is what we have done? So it's by my hard work I have this. By the arm of flesh I get this. And so I can be arrogant because I can look at myself. I am puffed up. And I look at others and I think, well, if they were only as good as me, they would have what I have. And this is for me to enjoy for self. And we're all kind of like this, like helium balloons that just kind of rise to the top. We, we rise in our pride. We don't go down traditionally. Our orientation is up. 
And Paul's saying, don't, don't be self-inclined. Don't be filled with pride. Don't be about yourself because after all, what do you have, says Paul in 2 Corinthians, that you didn't receive? And if, if you did receive it, why do you boast in it? Oh, maybe, why are you haughty? Like it wasn't a gift, for everything is a gift. It's foolish. Timothy's, tell them not to be haughty. Nor, on top of that, to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. On the one side, don't boast in these things. This, this folly, this, this false pride. Don't have this false pride. Now he's pointing at it and he's saying, don't have false, basically false security. And set your hopes on these riches. Don't, don't boast in the money you have and don't set your hope on these things. Well, why would this be folly? Why was it foolish to set your hope on riches? Well, I think he answers it in the text. He says it's uncertain. Riches are not secure. You can put them in the most secure fund. You can hide it under your mattress. You can put it in a lockbox. You can do whatever you want. But at the end of the day, it's not ultimately secure. Even the value of the currency entailed in the safe fluctuates. It's not certain. It's not secure. And so he's saying to him, don't, don't put your hope in these things. Don't put your trust in these things. Don't be deceived by the folly of pride as if it's the arm of flesh getting these things or the false security that if I just had a little more, then I would be able to stand. Paul's saying, don't let them do that. Don't let them put their hope in themselves and don't let them live for today. You know, Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 12 that's, I think, appropriate to turn to. If you're familiar with the Bibles, turn over to Luke 12, verses 15 through 21, and Jesus talks about a similar idea. He says in verse 15, he said to them, he's telling the story, he's teaching, Luke 12, 15, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. And then he says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Watch out that you're not coveting, wanting more, this insatiable desire to get stuff. Because life is more than what you have. What a prophetic word to the materialism of today, isn't it? And then he tells him a parable, saying, to make this point, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He's doing so well. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my bonds and build larger ones, and there I'll store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Verse 20. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That fool who was just, who was just living for today and amassing his wealth and, and thinking that this was all that it was about and thought that he was secure and he was going to build bonds and take care of it and he was going to be rich and he was going to be secure. It was folly. Because that very night, his soul was required. He was to die. And then who takes his stuff? 
So Paul is saying, listen, you, you can't just live for today. You can't just think it's all about your arm of flesh and what you can do. There's something greater than that. So he's warning them, don't think like this. Don't think like the world around you. Don't think like the billboards. Don't think like the commercials. Don't think like the news articles. Don't think like the shows. Don't think like your neighbors. You're a Christian. You have to think differently. Your heart is not calibrated by Wall Street or Washington, D.C. or Los Angeles. Your heart is calibrated by heaven. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. You have a very different economic system. Your orientation and your values are markedly different. So he says, I warn you not to trust in yourself and not to live for today. Secondly, he gives instructions. So it's not just warnings about false pride and false security. Now he shifts and he gives these positive instructions and it pivots right out of what he said back in 1 Timothy 6. In verse 17, he says not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So you see the contrast there, right? It's plain as day. Don't trust or put your hope in riches, money, self. It's uncertain. But do put your hope in God, who is certain, who is trustworthy, who is able to take care of you. That's his pivot. Don't, don't, don't put your trust in money or riches or self-worth through these things, but put your hope in God. What's so interesting here is what he doesn't say. He doesn't tell him, sell all your stuff. For some, that might be a good idea. He doesn't say that. He doesn't tell him to, to become aesthetic. But also he doesn't say to, to, to overflow with materialism and taking all of these things. What he does is provide a perfect balance against materialism. It's all about this life. And all against asceticism, which would just be all about depriving yourself, because he actually says God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So in the midst of cautioning hearts that would be discontent and going after lust, he says, listen, God gives you stuff to enjoy. And Ecclesiastes and other books teach us that God's good gifts are never to usurp the giver of the gifts, God themselves. But they are to be enjoyed as means to, to glorify God as the giver of the gifts. We don't want to be like Romans 1 where we're worshiping and serving the creation rather than the Creator. God gives these gifts so that we would worship Him and praise Him. But if we're worshiping the gifts, which is another way of saying worshiping ourselves, by abusing the gifts, by worshiping these idols, then we've just insulted the giver. So he says, put your hope in God who gives you all of these things so that you can enjoy. He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So hope in God. Contrasted with hope in self. And then he says, verse 18, they are to do good. To do good, to do good things. Doesn't that correlate with the, the catechism verse that was just up a few minutes ago? About doing good works according to God's word to do good. 
doing good would be opposed to doing evil, which is largely self, selfish, self-inclined, where it's all about us. This doing good is, is looking outward from ourselves, looking to others. Now, there's a difference between selfishness and self-interest. Like, we do things all day for our self-interest. We eat food, we take care of our bodies, we, we go to work, we take care of our homes. We do all kinds of things. We get sleep, everything we do for our self-interest because it's wise and it's good stewardship of the life that we have. That's not selfish to take care of self-interest. Self-ish is when we're worshiping ourselves and we're sacrificing clear commands of God and opportunities that God gives us for the sake of ourselves. Where we're focused on ourselves, our hearts are inclined inward on ourselves rather than outward on God and other people. And this is what Paul's getting at here. To do good, our heart oriented towards others. And it's like he double clicks on that when he says in verse 18, to be rich in good works. So if you maybe just connect the, the dots, he's saying in verse 17, charge those who are rich in this present age, and you might just put dot, 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 to be rich in good works. That's what he wants. He, he actually wants those who are quote-unquote rich to be rich in good works. It's kind of a play on words. He wants us to do things that, that, that are pleasing to God. He wants us to use our lives as a stewardship rather than squandering the good gifts that He has as means to worship ourselves, to steward these good gifts to worship Him and serve others. And then He says, maybe even deeper, pushing it for, forward, to be generous and ready to share. So you see how this kind of flows down if you're hoping in God and you're doing good and you're thinking about others and you're rich in good works that your lives are characterized by serving others, then you're going to be generous. This is be generous and ready to share. It's kind of like Paul says, I believe it's uh, 1 Thessalonians when he, or Ephesians 4 and 1 Thessalonians, a similar passage where he says, let the thief no longer steal, but work so that he may be ready to share and help. It's the same idea. Work for the Christian ethic, the mindset is not just work so you have money so you can take care of your needs. That's part of it. It's also so you can help others. And so here, the, the exhortation to the rich, just like to those who would work, is that instead of being lazy, to, to work so you have money, so you give to others, or if you have money, to be generous with others, to give it away. And it occurs to me that he's saying this, to be generous and ready to share. It's this idea of, of being looking for the opportunities to do it, actively looking with, with an open hand, not a tight grip on our stuff, but willing to give it away. This, a, this just sounds countercultural, doesn't it? To live in such a way that instead of clinging closely to our stuff and saying, mine, we loosen our grip and look outward for needs in the context of our church family primarily, and then outside of that as we have opportunities to, to try to look for needs so we can help and be generous and to, to share with others. So instead of holding our goods and our finances, so to speak, tightly to ourselves, Paul says, don't be haughty. Don't boast in the uncertainty of riches, but hope in God 
and have that hope in God where you're resting in and receiving His benefits so fill you in such a way that you want to do good, not primarily for yourself. You'll take care of that just by reflex. But do good works where you're rich in good works, where you're actually being generous to others. I wonder if tonight over dinner or in the evening or tomorrow over coffee or as I'm learning sweet tea is basically a rival for coffee, it sounds like. You're having a conversation with somebody, a trusted brother or sister or friend, and you ask the question, do you think I'm a generous person? Be honest. Am I generous? Why, why not? We naturally see ourselves in the best light. Sometimes it's our brothers and sisters who are able to speak truth and help us to see. You actually, you're frugal. That's a good quality. But you're also really kind of tight-fisted. I don't really think it looks like generous. It might be an opportunity to look at your heart before the Lord and ask, am I being generous? So there's a warning not to do these things, and then there's instructions to do these things, to hope in God, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous. And then there's some reasons that he applies. Some reasons why. You notice what he says in verse 19. Thus, he's saying, by doing this, you're storing up treasure for yourselves. So by giving away self, you're storing up treasure. Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. This is a solid future investment. This is what he's saying. It sounds remarkably similar to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, where Jesus is talking about lay up or store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where it's going to be secure. There's no moth or rust to destroy. It's it's protected. It's sin-proof and death-proof and time-proof, self-proof. Store up these treasures in heaven. And it might be a difficult concept to, to think through. What, do you, what does he mean? Well, I think what, he, what he's getting at here is living in such a way that your life is not characterized by the world around you, but by the world to come. That is, through the gospel, that you're looking for opportunities to serve Christ and to say, I am making much of Jesus Christ. Jesus means more to me than money, time, service. I'm giving myself away for Christ. I'm making a kingdom investment that may actually be something that would be costly in the present because I know it's going to bring glory to God. And when this whole world is done, as that that saying goes, in in due time, this world will all be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. In that age to come where what has been done for Christ will heap eternal glory. You're making this investment on the future. That how you live your life right now, how you make decisions, how you give to the church, how you serve one another, and how you organize your time and your schedule, what you say yes to, what you say no to, is actually a future investment of glory that will not fade away because it makes much of Jesus Christ. And so many times, we make decisions based upon the here and now. The ones and the zeros our schedule, our time, and what things look like. And we're not even thinking about eternity. How would this, my sacrifice, my service of brother or sister so-and-so, bring glory to Christ throughout eternity? And that's what I want to do. 
So Paul is saying, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. And so Paul's contrasting these two ages, those who are rich in the present age with the future age, and he's saying you need to be aware of these two things. And there's another aspect, another reason, one, for storing up treasures for the future, and it's secure, is, and then he says in verse 19, so that, and really this is the thrust of it, they may take hold of that which is truly life. He's helping them to see that, that by living in this way, that's living by hope in God, trust in God rather than self, and it's calibrated by eternity rather than today, that you're actually taking hold of the world to come, so to speak, eternal life. You're living in this age, this present age, which is 2023, but you're taking hold of the age to come, eternal life. You're being calibrated by this, this, this eternal reality that you're a citizen of heaven, that you believe the gospel, and that this gospel that you've believed isn't something that just came down and gave you fire insurance where you're not going to hell, but actually got into the crevices of your life and your soul and remade you. And that the kingdom of God is so broken into your life that that the kingdom has come in such a way that you've seen and you've tasted the good things of God, that Christ is worthy. And that the kingdom of God has changed your perspective and your priorities in such a way that you are calibrated by His kingdom. The kingdom of God affects your decisions and your priorities and your values and the way you look at money and time and people. And you say, by faith, taking a hold of God and His glory and that eternal life, and these things that I'm doing are giving evidence of that eternal life. You might flip it around the other way and say if somebody is living in a selfish way and living for this present world, squandering rather than stewarding, living for the gifts rather than the giver, then you would look at them and you would say what? I don't know how you could say you're a part of the kingdom. I don't see how you could say you lined up with Christ in the way. How are you following Jesus if it seems like this world is the ultimate end and you, rather than Christ, are what you're living for? Right? We would have reason to ask that. Paul's basically saying it the other way around. He's saying by giving yourself away and serving Christ and living not for this world but for the world to come, you're actually taking hold of eternal life. It's as if eternal life has been fast-forwarded into the present and you've grabbed a hold of it and you said, this is actually life. Not today. Not this world. Not me, ultimately. But Christ in His glory. And you respond to that by saying, Christ in His glory, I want to be serving Him so my life is a blank check written for Jesus. I think that's what Paul's getting at. As he is imprisoned, and at the end of his life, and thinking about the reality of pouring himself out as a drink offering for Christ. Taking hold of that which is true life. Well, quickly, as we close, what are some impediments to this? Well, one clear impediment would be to make life all about ourselves. It's about us. So selfishness and sin, really, really, that's the the bug and the ointment here. This is what prevents us from doing this. If our lives are about us, and we're clinging to our sin, like Gollum with his precious ring, my precious, my precious self, 
If that's what it's about, that's what gets in the way. And so we've got to realize that the, the natural tendency of our hearts is towards ourselves like that compass that always points north. So too our hearts always point inward. And so just by knowing that causes us to say that's how we have to actually apply the passage. By dealing with ourselves. Another impediment related to that would be to not realize that we live in two ages. See, our friends and family, the, the neighbors around us, are living for this age. But we as Christians, we see, as Paul says in verse 17, those who are rich in this present age, and then verse 19, for the future. And so we're weighing this out. and We're saying there's a present age and there's a future age. For unbelievers, there's, there's no future age, it's just the present age. So they're pouring it all out for now. And we as Christians, we can't think like that. We have to understand that this present age is not meaningless, it's not pointless, it has a point, but as much as it does, it points forward to the future age. So live in light of eternity. Realize there's two ages. And what you do in this life counts for eternity. So live like it. So there's some impediments, self and sin and not seeing the right ages. But I, I think maybe the other aspect for your encouragement would be the incentives to do this. Paul's given a few about laying up treasures in heaven and taking hold of eternal life, but I, I think he's using language here that even helps us with more incentive of this. I want you to think a minute about how Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see what Paul's doing there? He's dealing with giving in the church, and as an incentive to give, he's saying, look at the one who gave more than anything you can ever imagine. I think it applies here as well as we think about those who are rich in this world, not to be arrogant, not to be haughty, not to boast in the uncertainty of riches, but to hope in God and to do good and to be rich in good works and to be generous. If you need an incentive, if you need a motivation for living in such a way that, that you're giving yourself away for Christ, then you need to look at Christ who gave himself away for you. When you're feeling sluggish and discouraged and saying, why do I want to do this? Why don't I just live for today like my neighbors? Like everyone's telling me to do. Why don't I do that? You, then you look at Christ and you consider Him who though He was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though He was God and is God and remains God, He did not stay in heaven. But because we in our sin had rebelled against God and we were helpless and hopeless in ourselves, He adds humanity, he becomes a man. And what Paul does in Philippians 2 is he basically walks down these steps of humiliation where Paul becomes a man in human flesh. And this human flesh becomes a servant. And the servant dies. And then the servant dies on a cross. He walks down these steps of humiliation. And his whole point of doing this is so that people would count other people's interests as more important than themselves. 
And he walks it all the way down. He's like, surely you haven't stooped low enough to serve that's less than what Christ stepped to serve you. God to man, to servant, to death, to death on a cross for you. If He served you thus, what task is beneath you? And so if you need an incentive, you need motivation to serve, you look at Christ. If you need a model for service, you look at Christ. The one who served. You remember the scene in John 13 where Jesus is with His disciples and everyone's excited because they're going to have the Passover meal. It's a feast. It's time to be excited. It's a special event in their history. They're there with Jesus. They're all together. Jesus has it all prepared. They go in and they can smell the food cooking. They have the table set. The place where they're going to sit is all set up. And they come in and they're excited. And one disciple notices and looks and is thinking, where's the servant to wash the feet? Because customarily, as they walked about, their feet would be filled with all kinds of unmentionables. They would be filthy, and as they sat and reclined at the table, then feet needed to be cleaned so the meal could be enjoyed. And what do we see but Jesus standing up, taking off his robe, bowing down, getting the basin, and washing the filthy feet of the disciples. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture which demonstrates the reality of Christ giving himself to serve, take his, piece of, uh, his place of prominence to come down and serve us through the gospel. And so he does. So if you need a a model of service, look to Christ in the incarnation and how He serves. If you need a motivation for doing what Paul is talking about here, you look at Christ. Because it was Christ whose life was characterized by hope in God. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when He was being tempted? And the cup was foreboding in front of Him and he's, He's considering the cup of God's wrath. What did He say? Not my will, but your will be done. He hoped in God. And then, as he goes to the cross, we learn in Hebrews that he despised the shame and he was focusing his his attention for the joy set before him, which is not the cross primarily, but the exaltation back to the right hand of God. So here we have Jesus, the perfect model and motivation of one who trusts in God, who hopes in God, and who's calibrated by eternity. And the sweet cream of that is that you and I, dear Christian, are saved by Jesus setting aside His privilege to live for eternity and bless others with His generosity. He's the model and the motivation. And so you look at Paul telling this church in Ephesus, via Timothy, with some warnings and instructions and reasons, this countercultural message at that time to live by faith rather than trust in self, to be calibrated by eternity rather than the here and now. You see the Apostle Paul saying these things. And the question is, will we live like that? Will the Gospel come home in such a way that we live like that? Will Grace Church be characterized by people who give themselves away in generosity because they are eternally minded and motivated by the Gospel? Let's pray that He makes that so. Would you join me? Our Father, we want to give thanks to You 
for your abundant mercy through Jesus Christ. We thank you that though our sin was infinite and deserving of infinite wrath, that Christ came down and paid the penalty for our sin. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here who've trusted in Christ. May the sweetness of the gospel drive them to obedience to the commands of Scripture. And may the motivation be chiefly in what you have done for us so that we might make much of Christ and lay up treasures in heaven in his name. And Father, I pray that through the work, the faith that is done in this church and through this church, that the gospel would be increasingly attractive to the world around them. And that the message they declare would be demonstrated by their loving sacrifice to you. Lord, we need your help to do this. So we pray your mercy and your grace and your care. For the glory of Christ, we pray these things. Amen.